Welcome to a look at the issues. A look at the issues is a policy podcast based at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. I am your host, Suta Kavari. Now, this is week, what, nine, ten of lockdown. But likely we've seen an easing of lockdown measures right across the world. And what has become apparent is the complexities of policymaking. Now, policymaking has already been hard enough without having to contain the outbreak of a global pandemic. Now, many governments have struggled and have been forced to make U-turns on a number of policy pronouncements as pressure builds from interest groups, from unions, from opposition and the public to ease some of those very stringent measures, but while also ensuring that people are safe and the economy gets back on its feet. Of course, no government can afford to have any political distractions at this moment. Unless that government is the UK government forced to defend why the actions of a certain advisor are above the law. Or in Brazil, where the president is a lot more occupied with the political safety of his family and friends. But political angles aside, how are policies shaped? Who gets to influence them? And how do you manage the tension between politics, reality and what can be achieved? Importantly, what happens to those policies that never get to see the light of day? On this episode of A Look at the Issues, I pose these questions to Dame Helen Gosh, currently Master at Balliol College, Oxford, and previously Permanent Secretary of the UK's Department for the Environment. She reflects back on her time as a senior civil servant. She also talks to me about how to manage a crisis, similar to the current crisis that we're facing. And later on in the show, I am joined by two students reading for a Master's of Public Policy, Felipe Sevadra from Colombia and Toby Parker from the UK, who share reflections from their time in policy makings in their respective country and also some of the frustrations and challenges they faced in designing policies. I'm your host Sutekavari and this is A Look at the Issues. You have to understand and indeed you come to understand this point that most issues and most solutions to policy issues are much more complex than a simple a good thing to do and a bad thing to do. So I think one of the key things as policymakers is to really bring that sort of political noose, the the really skills to see the, the wood through the trees um, and situate your policy in, in the grounded reality. Institutions are important in order to, to pursue a policy or changes in a particular area. Because of course here in the United Kingdom, governments have changed, but the institution remains. And that is a way to guarantee that policies are delivered even with those changes. Many of the most transformative and innovative policy ideas never see the light of day. Um, This episode of A Look at the Issues explores what it feels like working in the policy space when events take over and where policies ultimately never get to see the light of day. Um, We've been exploring how it feels like working in those spaces and getting insights from people who have very intimate knowledge of the frustration that feels or the excitement uh, of seeing policies become law. On this episode of A Look at the Issues, we're joined by Dame Helen Gosh. Uh, master here at Balliol, and before that, uh, Director General of the National Trust. Before that, uh, Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. Do I continue before that? Well, it's worth saying uh, my longest experience as a Permanent Secretary is, in fact, if you say the Environment Department, because some of my examples will come from the, are more likely to come from the, the three areas of which I suppose my policy experience is greatest is 
what you might call social exclusion, urban regeneration, then environmental issues at the at DEFRA, if you'd say at the Environment Department, and it makes it international, and then you could say the Home Office. Perhaps let's get right into it. Um, policy making, what does that mean and how does that look like when you're working in government? Um, it's a very different issue from the kind of policy making that people will be familiar with from think tanks. Um, in a sense, it's a much messier process than you would see uh, out in um, the uh, think tank world because in some cases, um, as a civil servant, post a general election, uh, a new government comes in and they've had uh, their election based on a manifesto. And so they've got a list of things they think they want to do. They've got a list of policies they think they want to implement. Now, those may have come from think tanks or uh, their personal uh, views of the world. But in a sense, in government, uh, they they give this list to civil servants and that's what has to happen. Um, and for the civil servants, you're kind of implementing a policy in the middle of the process, you were never around when the, and I think this is the absolutely key issue in terms of policy making, the dis- debate about what is the problem we are trying to solve happened, uh, nor indeed where you were around at the moment where uh, the various options for how you might solve that problem happened. Uh, and so that moment at the beginning of a new government uh, is a very, very tricky one for civil servants because uh, in some cases it is the case that the answer that the manifesto that the political party has come up with is the right one. In some cases, it very much isn't. Uh, in all cases, for the civil servants who need to implement, they've got to understand what was the thinking behind it, what were people trying to achieve. And I suppose at that moment, there is the greatest rubbing up between the civil service and and the politicians, because neither side quite understands the other. And I guess that's also what we're experiencing now in the UK with the new government coming in and that whole friction that's happening in White House. But then as as the head of a civil service department, how do you how do you navigate that tension? How do you get the civil service on board? How do you get the politicians to understand how what the process is and how do you get the civil service to understand what a lot of the political ideas are? I think um something that's absolutely core to the framework within which civil servants operate, and this is something that all civil service leaders have to constantly Uh, repeat and demonstrate uh, in how they operate, is that the civil service is there to serve the democratically elected government of the day. Uh, They may or may not agree personally with the political views of the democratically elected government of the day, but that is what the civil service is there to do. Um, So uh, the first message a permanent secretary needs to send uh, after an election is, so now what we are here to do is enthusiastically, uh, energetically, professionally implement what we're asked to do. I think the other thing that leaders, civil service leaders need to do at that point is make sure they understand and facilitate that kind of mutual understanding of what is in the minds. How are the politicians thinking about the policy issues that face them? Special advisors, political advisors, though they get a pretty pretty bad press sometimes, can be an absolutely wonderful um, interlocutor in that debate. Because even if the minister is far too busy rushing around, being in parliament, uh, meeting constituents, uh, appearing in front of select committees, it is always possible if the um, uh, special advisors are professional and helpful and and, and there to help create a team, uh, to speak to them and say, "What, what is it that that's in his or her mind. What is it that you think is the problem that was trying to be solved? Do you think if we suggested X rather than Y, that would work? So that kind of 
interlocution, I think is fantastically important. It also, I think, is very important for everybody involved just to say, can you just remind me what it is we're trying to do here? You know, people have to be open and transparent about about both their ignorance and indeed about their objectives. I mean, you raise a very interesting point about the role that um, special advisors and ministers' assistants play in in facilitating this discussion between the politics and the policymakers. Because I think I don't think people quite understand that ministers spend not so much time in the government department itself. You know, there's demands on their time from from parliament, from constituents going to yep. a rally, and and sort of and it's 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 the special advisor who play that interlocuting role. Um, but then when you get into the civil service, and perhaps we can, you can touch a bit on your background when you started, um, what inspires someone to get involved in, in the civil service? Because I think the most attractive thing is to go into politics because, you know, you, you, have, you have a voice, you have a profile. But the civil service, to a great extent, is not as rewarding from if you want to be, I guess, out there and see. Uh, I think there's, there's a fascinating question. When I've asked, as I have been many times over the years, to talk to students um, or people thinking, other people thinking about joining the civil service, I always say the first thing that you've got to uh, think about is whether or not you are a natural campaigner or whether or not you are someone who sees, who recognizes already that most issues are very complicated. I think uh, um, uh, if you are the kind of person who believes that um, in most public policy issues. There's an absolute truth and there's an absolute evil. Uh, and uh, that can apply across a w- wide range of policy issues. Don't become a civil servant. You would be disabused, actually, is the first thing that will happen, because you will realize when you're inside the system, uh, when you do the analysis, when you talk, indeed, to a wide range of, of experts in a field, that most issues are not black and white in that sense. Uh, some of the most controversial issues are not black and white in that sense. Um, and um, uh, I sometimes wonder whether, of course, that understanding that most issues, most issues that are worth, with problems that are worth solving are very complicated ones, is something that you develop and grow in your career as a civil servant, or, when, or whether it's your natural nature. Is it nature or nurture that makes you realize that? But if you are, by nature, a campaigner, for heaven's sake, go out and be a campaigner or indeed a politician. <laughs> Again, no, no ambition. <laughs> and so you're talking about sort of dealing with a lot of the controversial issues. When does, when does an issue become controversial? When does an issue become crisis point? And when, when do you identify it? How, who defines what a crisis is? Because I think um, the media plays a, plays a, um, a great role in sort of heightening tension, saying yeah. like something is a crisis when it might not be. And then you have all this narrative swirling around something that's perceived as a crisis and might not necessarily be as a crisis. So as someone who's working behind the desk in, in the department, say the Department for Environment, and there's an issue coming up, that's, that's not a crisis per se, but it is. it could morph into one. And there's already narrative swirling around that it is a crisis. How do you deal with such issues and how do you deal with controversial issues? And perhaps touching in from your time at DIFRA, what were some of the controversial issues that you had to deal with? Yes. Uh, just can I set out what I think is an interesting taxonomy? I think there are slow burn issues in public policy that are always there. Uh, issues around poverty, issues around um, access to education, uh, issues about, for example, housing and how to collectively afford decent housing for everybody. Those are issues which over um, over decades, over centuries indeed, we've been working away at. 
Um, so I'd say there are slow burn policies where almost every government tries something. So, for example, universal credit in this country is one of those examples, uh, reforming uh, the absolutely basics of our social security system with the view to encouraging people into work, which is a, 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 um, a, ideally uh, is a way for people out of poverty and so on. So there are slow burn issues. Then I think there are two kinds of controversial issues or two, two kinds of crises. There are political crises, things that are as it were, created within the political bubble and in the media bubble. And then there are real practical crises uh, or real practical emergency situations. So um, uh, I do think it's absolutely vital for politicians to understand and indeed for civil servants to understand which of those things, which of those situations you're in. So if you just take the last two, uh, so for example, in this country, you had, we had... Um, you can have media crises around, um, uh, well, phone hacking was a very good example. It did have real world, world impacts on the people who were victims, but in terms of society as a whole, not so much. Uh, or um, parliamentary expenses was one that happened a few years ago where lots of MPs had... And, that, and that, the, the media political attention was just all focused on this thing that was not, in fact for the purposes of the existential existence of the state or of most individuals important. Then you have what you would call the real um, uh, operational crises, which would be, uh, say, for example, in DEFRA, um, in the Department of the Environment when I led it, would be things like flooding, which we have in this country at the moment, how to deal with flooding, how to deal with um, animal disease that might spread to humans. Uh, currently, of course, across the world, we have coronavirus. That is a that is a, a genuine crisis where, on the whole, I think you see politicians and civil servants and public servants more generally operating together at their best. And that's in that situation, what you need is uh, what is the role that politicians can fulfill in terms of communications, in terms of making the big decisions, for example, on any legislative or regulatory change you may need, for example, about closure of public buildings or uh, restrictions on events. Uh, and then you need the scientists to know what's the right thing to do in the right situation, and you need the civil servants to make sure that that all operates. So I think you've got to be clear what is the crisis that you're dealing with. And then when the crisis arises, like flooding that happens or phone hacking, how do you then use that crisis as a way of um, tackling a lot of those slow burn issues that you touched on? Well, I think flooding is a perfect example of that because, you know, in a sense, it's a slow burn issue, but it's one that increasingly is becoming an existential issue, and that's climate change. Yeah. And uh, I think, rightly, politicians and experts are using flooding here, the terrible fires in Australia, the drought on the west coast of the US, to say, yes, we are dealing as well as we can uh, with the immediate crisis, but in fact, what does this tell us? This tells us that we need to be doing something about the climate crisis. And therefore, it, they, sh they are using it as a lever uh, once the, the immediate crisis is dealt with to, to make the arguments for uh, decarbonization, for um, changes in fundamental issues about travel or house building, whatever it is. So that's where I think those two things meet. On climate change, uh, interestingly enough, when I think David Miliband was... Um the environment secretary, there was, a, there was a push for better environmental policies and sort of like as a way of tackling climate change. And I think that was before its time, before 
discussions around climate change were sexy. Can you tell, tell us? That, that I, yes, um, that I think is one of the what you might call the purest examples of policy making, end to end process that I've uh, had experience of. Um, and that was um, David Miliband, very strategic thinker, um, uh, really interested in how you can use radical ideas to solve the long, slow burn policy issues. And within the department then, we had a member of staff who had come in, and again, this is something to do with how important it is to have the, the, the largest, richest mix of people involved in policymaking. Uh, they'd come in, I think, from Oxfam as a climate uh, expert, having seen the impact of climate change in uh, around the world. And she had developed the idea of, or picked up or um, taken forward the idea of carbon budgets. Uh, I think it was really the case that David Miliband was wandering around the building one day, fell into conversation with her and said, what are you doing? And she, we had asked her uh, to, to develop these ideas and see what they might look like. Not, I think, with any particular belief that um, this would come to anything in the short term. He, uh, it, it was an idea that appealed to him. He then used his political, uh, the idea of setting up uh, a set of milestones, budgets for carbon, uh, emissions for the UK over coming years, uh, supervised, policed by uh, a, uh, a specific committee, the Climate Change Committee. And he then started using his political skills and his political contacts to uh, socialise that across Westminster. Uh, and he did so with his uh, Labour Party cabinet colleagues, I think mainly with the younger ones, interestingly. Crucially, he had very good uh, contacts at the Treasury, well, I think his brother was still a special advisor and, and Ed Balls was a special advisor. So he used his contacts to get the idea acceptable to the Treasury, despite its potential economic. And then we had the Climate Change Act um, with this structure set up, I think, which was at the forefront. I think it was the first country in the world that had anything like that. But it's a lovely example of how the idea can be you pick up, people play the role that they should play, politicians play a political role. Um, uh, uh, civil servants play a role in terms of forming and shaping the legislation and you get it you get the change made now if only all policy issues could be solved in that way <laughs> and but then obviously you then describe the best example of that's that that's a pure example and a pure example of that and obviously now i'm obviously tempted to, to ask what's the inverse of that from your experience that you experience working can i give it's a very strange example it may be a me, me, very strange example to some of the listeners to this podcast i'm going to talk about badgers so badgers. in the United Kingdom, badgers, yeah. uh, an animal familiar, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, a, a, large, <laughs> a large, quite destructive mammal uh, that lives in burrows. And in this country, for many, many years, has been blamed for conveying um, TB to cattle and therefore having a, an economic impact on um, cattle farmers, uh, dairy farmers in particular. Uh, the um, as I've often said uh, in uh, talking about policy issues, this is the perfect example of an almost insoluble policy issue. Uh, what are its characteristics? So the science around whether or not badgers, if they're allowed to live in proximity to cattle out in the open in open fields, uh, what actually is the transmission? Is it in fact a transmission that goes from badger to, to cow, or is it from cow to badger? Um, is uh, uh, what is the most important vector for TB in cattle? Lots of arguments about that. Um, whatever, say, the farming lobby, 
uh, if we just culled, if we just slaughtered all these badgers, uh, it's bound to have some impact on uh, the incidence of TB, which causes the cattle to have to be uh, culled themselves. Uh, so can we just go ahead with a cull? In this country, for historic reasons to do with strange uh, hunting practices called badger baiting, badgers are in fact a protected species. So we cannot, you could not just go out into your field and shoot lots of badgers. So it has to be an organized cull. It's very difficult to kill a badger in any humane way. Um, uh, in the old days, people used to put their exhaust pipes with a hose down the badger set and car exhausts were so dirty, the badger would die. That's not the case now because cars have been cleaned up. If you're going successfully, all uh, studies show, um, have an impact on the incidence of TB in cattle insofar as it is caught from badgers, you have to kill something like 70% of the badgers in the relevant area for that to work, even to have a 16% chance of... 70%. 70% of the badgers to have a 16% reduction effect. And people feel fantastically strongly on both sides. The farmers believe this is something we should do, cull on a large scale. The people who love badgers and want badgers to be protected on the other side believe it's the worst thing in the world you can do. And the science is quite, um, I was going to say ambiguous. It's not ambiguous, but people will argue about it endlessly. So you've got uh, a practical issue, you've got a public issue, you've got a um, scientific issue, and you've got um, tribal views among the politicians. So when I was working for the Labour government, the then uh, Secretary of State for the Environment, uh, Hilary Benn, said, I don't care whether or not it could have an effect on the incidence of TB in cattle if we had a, a mass uh, cull of badgers. I just don't think this should be done. I just, on principle, I'm not going to do this. The Conservative government that then came in said, I believe that um, a, a mass cull of badgers is something that should work. Um, uh, it was strongly challenged, I should say, through a, a judicial executive challenge. Uh, I just believe it, as it were, in my gut, uh, and so we're going to have one. And so policy swings to and fro. Now, it's not a major issue in terms of the economy. It's not a major issue in terms of society. But it's a really good example of an issue which is very grey. It's an, it's an example of a policy where people can take very different points of view for very different reasons. And in the end, and I think this is a very important point for civil servants to understand, it almost comes down to it's a democracy the minister in the end has to decide, and they can decide for reasons which are much more to do with their political principles than anything to do with the science or evidence. And in those grayscales and very ambiguous policy uh, spaces, when does government take the lead and when does government follow? When does government take the lead from scientists, from, from civil society, and when does government take a very firm lead and say, like, this is what we're doing? Um, I think um, that... And this is an area which uh, I've done quite a lot of work with, with the Royal Society in this country and the civil service, uh, to see how you can get the best interrelation, interplay between scientific advice and policy. Um, so, no, so in this country, over the last 20 years, there's been an immense, uh, uh, immensely important influx of high-quality, uh, world-leading scientists into the policy space, into government, as, special, as scientific advisors uh, to government. Um, I think there are some issues on which the scientific evidence is absolutely um, irrefutable. And I think it's interesting at the moment to see how this government is uh, taking the scientific advice. 
And thinking about the politics of policymaking, how do you balance your own sort of like fundamental set of values with the politics of the day that you might not necessarily agree with? For me, there have been, there are likely to be very few areas of policy where uh, the conclusion that's reached by the government is one that fundamentally challenges my most um, closely held principles. And frankly, if there were such a a space, I would simply not work in that area. Um, The civil service is a large, wide thing. And if I were asked to work on an area where I felt that my fundamental beliefs were challenged, I would ask to move somewhere else or, or ultimately I would leave. Uh, that's actually never happened to me in the sense that most of the policies, social policy, and indeed environmental policies on which I've worked, are the kinds of issues where there are a multiplicity of ways you can handle the problem, uh, that you can deal with the policy solution. And uh, uh, and both my natural instincts, and I think of most civil servants, is to recognize that. It's also the case that this ethos of that you are there to, the fundamental principle of our employment is that we are there to serve the democratically elected government of the day, and that that is a good in itself. So it would only, I think, be in an extreme case where we felt, or one felt, that the policy was so damaging uh, or so uh, contrary to one's fundamental principles that, that you would feel the need to take action. Uh, I do think the taking action, again, is something that, uh, of course, civil servants over the decades have taken different views. You know, is it leaking the the evidence? Is it going to the papers? Is it simply leaving, which I think is the decent thing to do, and expressing one's concerns from outside government, from outside the civil service, which I think is, on the whole, the, the decent thing to do? Um, so, uh, from, as I say, from my personal point of view, there's never been such an instance. I haven't ever... Uh, had a job or wanted to have a job in some of those areas where those things might arise, say defence or health issues or whatever it may be. And given, perhaps in way of closing, given all the uncertainty that completely engulfs the way the politics is making, the, the, I guess the fundamental shift that have happened in politics where things that were sort of like set in stone, things that were quite black and white are no longer black and white, and we're operating in this incredibly grey space, um, what do you? How do you see sort of policy making playing out in this very uncertain politics that we entering into? I, I'm fascinated by the way you say the way it's all's changed. It's a grey space. How is this going to work? <laughs> what I, What strikes me after the, as you quite rightly describe, incredibly um, uncertain and unpredictable politics in Britain over the last, well, since 2016, really. We seem to have got to a stage of back to something fantastically traditional. You know, we've got a government with eighty an eighty seat um, uh, majority, uh, rather like the Thatcher government coming in in nineteen seventy nine, which is when I joined the civil service. They've got a very clear mandate. Uh, people know what they stand for. They don't quite understand how what they stand for. <laughs> things like levelling up is actually going to be put into practice. Um, uh, in 1970, in 1997, when the Labour Party came in, it was it was um, very clear that they were deeply suspicious of the civil service because the civil service had worked for Margaret Thatcher or the Conservative government for all those years. I think we're just in a very traditional space. Lots of kind of uh, shadow boxing between politicians and civil servants, uh, but in a parliamentary sense and in a legislative sense uh, and in an operational sense, I think we're almost back to business as usual. 
Fantastic. Dame Helen, thank you so much. My name is Felipe Saavedra. I am from Colombia. Uh, I have experience working in the national government in Colombia for five, almost six years. Before coming to Oxford, I work in three different ministries and national institutions in Colombia. When you're working as a policymaker, uh, it is, uh, I have to say, a little bit frustrating when policies do not see the light from, from, from a variety of reasons. When you talk about policy failures, I mean, and it gets pronounced a lot that this policy was, was failed because of implementation, and this policy failed because the budget costing wasn't there. But what does it mean? What is what is policy failure? I mean, as we sort of like think about it as policy students and as policy makers, what does it, what does it mean when you talk about sort of policy failures? Felipe, do you wanna? Yes, of course. Well, there are many categories in which where I put a policy failure. It could be legal, it could be budget constraints, it could be political. Uh, and all of them, we will need a different way of, to tackle those issues, right? In order to see the policy, uh, to see the, the to see the light for the policy, you will have to tackle those issues. It depends. So, if you have budget constraints, of course, it's a problematic, and you will never see the light. If you have lack of information, could be too. If you have different political interests because the government changed, that is of course one of the one of the biggest problems, and that's how policies do not see the light. So that going forward, when we talk about policy failures in our own spaces, what are some of the things that we, we, we tend to miss in the conversation? Uh, how to guarantee that the policy survives. I believe that uh, in order to see, to see policies go through, we have to have strategies, strongest strategies for policies to survive. I'm talking about legal stability of the policies. If it is only a program, a project, or something that it is, it does not have a strong legal route. It can be changed easily by the next government or by political changes in the uh, political changes in society. So having legal stability, and this is the case of of the peace agreement. Implementing the peace agreement, the, the peace agreement in Colombia is for some people. It is being implemented slowly. For some, it is dying precisely because of that. So that would be one thing. The other would be institutional changes in order to strengthen institutions. Uh, that's how to guarantee, uh, that's a one way to guarantee that policies survive. Also, of course, activism or political pressure from different stakeholders and budgeting, of course. Hi, yeah, I'm Toby Parker. I've uh, worked in the UK civil service for the last five years, four of which have been in the Department for International Development, working on a range of different issues from violence against women and girls, violence against children, running development programs in Tanzania, and then most recently on the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan. So I think working on policies that ultimately die is one of the most frustrating things of being a policymaker because so often it can be as a result of nothing to do with you. And it's as a result of the political environment you find yourself in or um, just some kind of extenuating circumstances. And you have to really come to terms with that. Um, and sadly, quite often when policies die, they die with the people in that post. In the UK civil service, we have a habit of rotating people quite frequently 
So you maybe hold a post for two years, maybe maximum three years. And there's very little institutional knowledge. And so if a policy dies, doesn't get written, uh, written down, doesn't get implemented, then all those excellent ideas that have gone with it often die too. Uh, what, are also, what are some of the challenges that also face um, policymakers in the policy design process? So in the policy design process, I would be most concerned around situating your policy in the bigger picture. And far too often, as policymakers, we have a very, very narrow field of view. We get very excited about our policy area, um, what we're specifically trying to achieve, failing to take into account the bigger picture considerations. And if you do that, quite often you will you know, go through the whole design process and then it gets to ministers or whoever is there to approve your policy and roll it out. And they will quite, seely, quite easily see um, that this doesn't fit within the wider political context. And so I think one of the key things as policymakers is to really bring that sort of political noose, the, the really skills to see the, the wood through the trees um, and situate your policy in, in the grounded reality. And, and I think in, investing in data and demonstrating its importance in the policymaking process is something that we, that we continue to have to do to ministers or, or seniors. It's, it's not the sexiest thing to be investing in, but it's really going to be the thing that, that grounds your, your policy. That being said, I also you know, want to make clear that, in my, in my opinion, data is, is fundamentally important, but we also shouldn't constrain ourselves to not act um, if there isn't enough data. And, and quite often we will think that we have to run a fully comprehensive randomized control trial that's you know, incredibly expensive before we can even act. There are, there are little things that you can do to test methods, to test policies, um, and working in a kind of more agile way that slowly builds up your, your data and understanding. And in that way, that means that you're still able to have an impact without being totally constrained in the absence of data. And that's all we've got for you on this episode of A Look at the Issues. Join us again next time when we explore education policies and how that is designed as schools, as many schools around the world start to reopen. I pose the questions, are schools in their current form fit for purpose? Now, A Look at the Issues is produced by Ellen Tipping, Fred Davis, and James Morris. It is researched and edited by Jasmina Bede and Shavika Misra, and project managed by Desmond Otome and Anthony Livers. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. We are on studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. Or you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. We are at A Look at the Issues. If you want to get in touch with us, that's how you find us. Or if you want to listen to more podcasts, please subscribe to us. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that you get your podcast. That's all we have for you. I'm Suta Kavari. Goodbye.